0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is Tweet. audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new winamp for android featuring wireless sync and one-click itunes import now with free daily music downloads and full-length cd listening parties download it for free at winamp.com android Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 334, recorded January 4th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 134. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup, automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files, just $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now, the show that uh, covers your security and privacy online. And Steve Gibson is here. He is the man, the host, the legend, the guy who does this show every week with lots of great security news and information, explanations. He's a teacher, uh, and he's a mentor, and he's a good old guy, which uh, is one of my great (laughs) friends.
1: Older and wiser, I hope. (laughs) Yes. Let's hope. First episode of 2012
0: for for you and me. Happy New Year.
1: Yeah, likewise, Leo. We had a fun
0: time last week. I have to say, I'm glad we didn't do a rerun. Uh, yep. because uh, we talked about sci-fi that was so fun
1: well it's you know it's something that's near and dear to both of our hearts and it turns out it was a huge hit i got a ton of feedback from our listeners who went to grc.com/feedback to tell me what they were thinking and also stuff in my twitter stream i mean just people just really really liked it in fact i had one i saw one note where the guy said okay my my three favorite episodes of all time were Portable dog killer, the vitamin D, and the sci-fi special. And it's like, okay, wait a minute,
0: <laughs> not security. Those are, those are about security. I'm not into security, man. I, I don't. I don't dig security. I don't want to do security. I think they just like hearing you and me <laughs> ramble on about random things that. In, you it, know, that's fine. really what this, you know, network sh- was originally just a bunch of gas bags talking about stuff. And we really probably should just stick with that format instead of trying to do content. Although we got a lot of content. And we got a and a today. In fact, I bet you some of those questions have to do with uh, uh, last week's episode.
1: Uh, I avoided that
0: because I figured.
1: I mean, I had to literally step around all of the feedback about sci-fi because I thought, well, okay, we did that, but let's not. Actually, there were a lot of interesting comments uh, as a really interesting industry-wide problem that that forced Microsoft to issue a very rare out-of-cycle patch, which they did. We'll talk about and uh, some little uh, bit of. Uh, legal news but yeah some we have uh, I did 12 q a uh, questions that i found because a couple of them are just going to be quick comments Good. and uh and so so forth so yeah i think everyone's going to be happy with uh another podcast
0: you know we only have really one commercial so uh why don't why don't we launch right into it but before we do just a program note next week is the consumer electronics show and as usual we're going there in, you know with our bags in hand uh, your batteries charge batteries charge yeah i just got a ginormous battery for my phone by the way you know it comes with as most you know batteries do instructions for conditioning it's a lithium-ion battery mm-hmm. completely in uh, opposition to everything you have recently told us it said uh, do not plug in your cell phone right away use it normally till the battery is completely discharged once discharged Then plug it into a wall charger, not a USB or a car charger. We want high voltage. And then we want to charge it all the way. But don't do too much uh, to drain the battery quickly. You want it to drain. This is nuts. For the first few times at a slow, even rate, drain the battery fully again before plugging the phone in. Do not, it says, do not fall into temptation to plug the cell phone in. is this because of a, is this a
1: larger capacity battery? It
0: is. It's, a, it's about
1: ah. three times normal. Uh, the reason they're telling you to do that is that it's necessary for you to train <sighs> the phone. It's not about the battery. It's that you have to train the phone that that against its expectations, this battery is going to last right. much longer than it
0: expects. And so I don't I'd think like, that's what this is about, but I think you're right. That's probably a good idea. Well, but no, they're no. they're I mean, saying things like conditioned cell phone batteries are meant to be able to catch a few minutes of charge as needed, but it's the first few days that are vital to good conditioning, which we know is is not true, right? On lithium yeah, ion, that, that's not true. Although
1: it would be it would be the case that your phones, the phone will be confused. Battery, right. it's your battery meter, right? Wouldn't be expecting to have a battery lasting so much longer right so that would want to show you'd want to show it a few times by going to the extremes how long this particular battery lasts and then the phone's gonna be going whoa okay because otherwise it would be showing you a a very pessimistic looking percentage right um meter and you'd be saying wait a minute i got an extended capacity battery and this thing's running at zero
0: even though it wasn't even there yet that's that's you know, I doubt that's what they're thinking, <laughs> but uh, I think that that's uh, a good reason to do it. But <laughs> but just to recap what you said some time ago, a few episodes ago, there's no lithium-ion batteries. The best thing to do is just keep them charged as much as possible all the time, right?
1: Yes. The, the universal agreement is that unlike prior technologies, prior chemistries, both um, – nickel cadmium and then nickel metal hydride which was actually the same fundamental electrochemistry those you those had a memory effect so if you if you only discharge them a little bit and recharge them often mm. they would forget that there was like a lot more room down below the point that you were normally starting the the recharge so the logic there was run them all the way down to the ground before you recharge them um, and if you can't, then you could reset their memory by deliberately doing some deep, deep cycles. Lithium-ion, completely different story. It has no memory, and it actually is better for the chemistry not to be running it all the way down. So there the logic is charge often. And and if you are in a situation where, for example, you have access to a plug and you've got your adapter always use the adapter when you can and actually one of the questions in today's Q&A explains a mystery that we encountered a few weeks ago and i don't remember which episode you were on or which episode tom was on with me but it was someone's cell phone instructions said
0: once it's charged unplug it from the wall all which, of them say that which okay and, uh, and Nokia started it and the reason is those little chargers take uh, draw power even when they're not that, doing anything that so is it's exactly a, it's a green right. thing
1: i exactly right i right. was assuming that it's like well, well you know okay that it, that the phone ought to be taking responsibility for battery management and in fact the manufacturer is trying to take responsibility for those for the charger I, I like calling them wall
0: warts. Wall warts, yeah. Might, yeah. But we warts. all leave our wall warts. Come on, who's going to plug in and unplug all their wall warts all the time? And
1: it, it is annoying to feel how warm they are, which, yeah. of course, is the giveaway that right. this thing is expending electricity. Make so. better wall warts. <laughs> yeah, and they could, Leo. Right. They could easily have smart wall warts that shut down when, you know, after they've, they've done their charging It cycle. just baffles
0: but, me. I mean, this is a company that makes these batteries And they just, it says, continue to drain your cell phone battery completely before plugging it in at every available opportunity. Regardless of the age or conditioning of your cell phone battery, it will always last longer over time when discharged fully before charging in again. Now, of course, there's circuitry to keep it from discharging fully. But, you know, Leo, this to me, this
1: sounds like language that has not changed right it's they were exactly so yeah. that so they, so they, they just they've never updated it's probably you know they, they they uh it's probably an asian manufacturer it, it is of that course, yeah. that paid
0: for a good oh, english translation that's what it is this is like this is like colonial british <laughs> <laughs> you know when you're using nickel cadmium batteries it is always better to discharge fully that's probably what it is. Yeah. And the, they and just they, didn't want to buy another chemistry. translation.
1: <laughs> yeah. The electrochemistry completely changed <laughs> out from under them and they never updated their manuals.
0: That is so funny. Well, I'm just glad I listened to Security Now so I, I didn't have to do that. Yeah. Um, but I think you are right. I think it's probably a good idea to let the cell phone know. I, I wonder how smart Android uh, software is about all that, uh, whether it needs to, you know, whether it'll figure that out or how long it'll take to figure it out and all
1: that. It really. See that and this is it. It really can't it doesn't because number. because lithium ion cells hold their voltage with a very slow drop until very near the end when it suddenly drops off. Right. So so it it, it the, the, the reason our laptops sometimes do put us through a calibration cycle is they need to they need to see where the end of the battery's life is in order to reset this timer so they actually go on time more than on voltage because voltage isn't a reliable um, source of feedback for them about the current state of the of the battery's charge Ah. and that means you really would have to teach your phone Mm -hmm. that against all logic this battery is lasting three times longer than than like the normal battery
0: that's very interesting well, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to let it die a couple of times and see what happens. Cool. So uh, let us uh, – let's see. Well, you know what? Let, let, let's do uh, – so oh, I know what I was saying. I was going to talk about CES. I got completely distracted. One of the reasons I got this big battery is so I can use this thing all day at CES. Uh, most cell phones, you know, I plug them in all the time. But once with a CES is a kind of an unusual situation where you're, you're on your feet 12, 14, 16 hours yep. a day and you want these phones to last. A number of manufacturers have given me external batteries, backpacks with built-in batteries. They know. <laughs> the, that's, this is a universal problem. So we're going to uh, move security now next week because uh, we'll be out on the show floor. A little difficult for us to do this kind of show there. So yeah. Monday, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Uh, this coming Monday, January 9th. That's the next security now. I'll remind you at the end of the show. Uh, and we'll do a show then. Um, and then... Uh, do watch, though, all week long for uh, the latest from the Consumer Electronics Show. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think a lot of yeah, interesting cool. things. Yeah, um, All right. Oh, and I should say thank you to our friends at uh, New Tech because they're going to provide us. We use it here in the studio. We couldn't do what we do without it at New Tech TriCaster 8500 Extreme. I'm switching through it. I have all the lower thirds. I have crazy transitions, too, that I can play with. Oh, this is a. I just love this thing. And I was there when I I saw it when I was up there, Leo. It is
1: just, it is really state-of-the-art technology. It's it's incredible. We we can do that.
0: (laughs) I don't know what that was. (laughs) We can do, could we do that without the TriCaster? So uh, I want to thank them because they're sending us the uh, TriCaster, they're sending us a separate one. So we can use it at CES, which is awfully nice of them. Uh, And if you are interested in video production at all, whether, I mean, they have a broad range for every price, every purse, every price point. uh, Go to newtech.com, N-E-W-T-E-K.com to take a look at the TriCaster. We're using the top of the line, of course. Eight inputs, digital, HD, all of that stuff. Um, it's just amazing what that thing can do. Buttons you don't even know what they oh, do. Man, you should see the control surface we're using. It's just incredible. Newtech.com to find out more about the Tricaster. Actually, I have a lower third. No, that's not it. Is it New Tech? Yeah, New. We're moving this screen around because I, I got I can't see what I'm doing over here. I guess I don't have the lower third. Somewhere I have a lower third for New Tech. New There it is. <laughs> So I I'm at, this is actually kind of wild cuz we have the you know we have the turret in the middle of the studio and that's the control room where everything goes on you can see it uh, there on the on the kind of on the right um yeah. but I have rich but I can do the same thing here uh so I have the tricaster monitors here and the and the keyboard along with my mixer but I want to move these monitors they're kind of they're kind of not opportunely positioned I need to move them so I can look at them instead of having to look over my shoulder so we're going to move them while I'm gone Uh, make it a little bit easier for me to do my switching. Thank you, New Tech, for the TriCaster. God bless you. Let's get to our security news, Mr. G. Okay, now this is really interesting.
1: Um, Back in 2003, some researchers raised everyone's awareness of some fundamental problems with with hashing algorithms, which were being used in all of the server-side tools. And by all, I mean just across the board in Oracle's Java and and Glassfish, uh, Microsoft's ASP.NET system, Python, Ruby, PHP, both versions 4 and 5, Apache's Tomcat and Geronimo, Jetty, Plone, CRuby, JRuby, Rubinus, and even uh, more recently, the V8 JavaScript engine. What happens is when users are submitting data from their web browsers to a web server, and we've talked about this in all kinds of different contexts, a so-called post query is made to the server. And the, the body of the query contains all the arguments that you're sending. So, you know, when we're filling out a form during purchasing on a, on a, on a web forum where we've got multiple fields, you know, anytime we're sending data up to the server, we're using almost always a post-style query containing data. Well, what does servers do is they hash the various elements of the request as a means of of storing it in a data structure that then allow these server side scripting languages, thus Python, Ruby, PHP, Java, ASP.net, and so forth, they they create this data structure which those scripting languages then query in order to obtain the arguments that the user has submitted. Well, back in oh three, so what? Uh, eight years, nine years, yeah. yeah, like eight, like eight or nine years ago, plenty of time ago. Researchers pointed out the fact that it would be possible to create to deliberately create hash collisions which would overtax servers. Now, the reason this happens is that if you, um, we have to explain a little bit about how these hashes are used. The idea is you sort of use the hash, the result of the hash, like an index into a data structure where you store stuff. So, for example, say that, say that, the user submits some data and individual pieces are hashed into a th- down to a 32-bit token we're not talking like crypto hashes which are 128 bits or or 160 bits or 256 we're just we're sort of wanting to distribute the incoming data evenly in a bunch of in a bunch of separate little buckets so we might turn the input data in individual pieces into sort of a, a quick and easy, like a 16 or 32 bit hash. So that's then used to sort of as the index to store this piece of data. The idea being that all the data that you hash is going to sort of have different 32 bit values and so get stored under different 32 bit tokens. Well, these researchers in 03 said, okay, but if they weren't stored in different 32-bit tokens, if they were all stored in the same one, like by somebody maliciously designing the data so that it would hash to the same value, and since these are not cryptographic strength hashes, they're just sort of little quick, uh, sort of quickie hashes meant to distribute the data evenly, that means that it's possible to pretty easily design them so that they don't, that is, design the input data so that it isn't distributed evenly. You can force all of the input to, to hash to the same 32-bit value. Well, it turns out that our servers can't handle that at all. I mean, the idea is that, that this approach... For average, typical data is very quick and does a very good job. But the worst case is very bad. It collapses. So what happened was that several months before reminding everyone of this in a in the 28th Chaos Communication Congress, which occurred recently, I think it was like last Wednesday or the Wednesday before in Berlin security researchers who decided they wanted to demonstrate this, they notified a couple months before all of the various um, makers of the server-side technologies that I talked about, I mean, like all of them, that were vulnerable, Microsoft included, and all the other guys. Um, And they said, hey, we want to let you know, this has been known about for... You know, eight or nine years. Um, you really need to fix it because <laughs> we're going to, sh- yes, <laughs> we're going to, sh- we're going to show people how bad this is. Okay, so how bad is this? They demonstrated that a single person with just using a s- seventy to a hundred k bits of Connection bandwidth, which we know is like nothing, could completely saturate a server using an Intel i7 core processor. A single machine. A single machine could be brought down with essentially creating a denial of service attack on a website with 70 to 100 k bits of queries in, in in what they showed was that hours of CPU time can be consumed making a single HTTP post request so um, uh, they uh, in one of the papers which they demonstrate, they show that if a, if a single attacker had a gig connection that gigabyte connection, okay, or if, if an attacker had ten hundred meg connections, like from a small bot fleet, or a hundred ten meg connections, which is easy to get, that could fully saturate ten thousand I seven core servers. I mean a a a huge commercial website can be taken down with relatively low bandwidth usage by essentially perpetrating a CPU resource consumption attack by generating these requests to the server, which which deliberately cause hash collisions. The idea is that uh, these hash collisions prevent the data from being scattered out over space, essentially, where the data can be accepted quickly and force the all the data to be stored in the same place, which is like a worst case scenario over, at, at the server end for it accepting the data. So Microsoft a couple weeks ago issued an out of cycle patch, and everybody else has, in the meantime, fixed it. So um, the problem is now that this is known. The reason Microsoft was, of course, motivated to fix this is it's a, it's trivial to do this. It takes it's no effort at all, and and the industry could easily see. That bad guys would just have fun doing this. I mean, so, in, just so
0: people in, understand, this isn't a threat to your system being compromised or anything like that. It just means that bad guys can do DDoS attacks, attacks on websites easier with less well, hardware.
1: With actually it's with almost no bandwidth. With, with very very yes. easy. <laughs> so a gigabit. So, yeah. A gigabit's not no bandwidth. That's a lot no, of no, bandwidth. No. no. A, but a, but a, a smaller server, oh. I mean a state of the art I seven Core server can be can be DDoSed, actually just dosed, You don't need distributed, just DOSed with between seventy and a hundred k. Oh, I get it.
0: Yeah. So it's if you really- had, so if you had, I see. Wow. Yeah. So
1: so I mean, so the idea would be you need much more to bring down a a, a ten thousand server farm, but right. even that can be brought down but a single server you can take it down with 70k of data wow. tying up its 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 processor for hours making a single query so so this is you know we've talked about how the the generic concept of a denial of service is that regular users cannot access the resources of a web server for some reason well there are many different reasons. One was like making lots of connections that you don't ever complete and so you exhaust the server's ability to accept valid connections by t- by tying it up waiting for for bogus connections to actually be made. So that was th- there was a that was a TCP connection resource denial of service where you just You used up the server's ability to accept connections by sort of hanging connections that weren't actually made. A different approach is just flooding it. A bandwidth denial of service is where you just pound the actual connection to the server. The server's sitting around with nothing to do because you've, you've like brought the routers down. The routers can't handle all the traffic trying to get to the server. So, Valid users are unable to get there. So that's a typically a distributed denial of service attack. The outcome is the same. Valid users can't get there. So what we have now, this thing, is a new type of denial of service where by cleverly designing the queries that are made to the server, we are overloading the computational ability and so we have a low bandwidth just a trickle of queries can take a server off the net because it's there's a the way it's it's accepting the data will collapse if the data is designed just right and it turns out it's no rocket science to do this now all you need to do the reason the reason hackers can do this is All of these different systems that I talked about, Java, ASP.NET, Python, Ruby, PHP, Tomcat, and so forth, they use a very simple and well-known hash. There's only a few of them that most people use. It turns out it was Dan Bernstein's hash, uh, variations of, of a hash that Dan Bernstein came up with to be very efficient in computation time so that it wouldn't take much time to do this, but that's what's been exploited. So Perl is one of the systems that took this seriously in 03. they They're not among the, the, the list of vulnerables. They haven't been because all they had to do was just you use a, you randomize the hash when you, when, when you boot Perl up. And so it ha- so each instance of Perl running ov- all over the internet has a slightly different hash. So there's no way for the bad guys to pre-design data that will cause a deliberate collision of the output of the hash. That's all it took. But nobody else bothered until these guys said, "Okay, it's been eight or nine years. Uh, let's make everybody bother because without." Without fixing this, all of the servers out there were vulnerable until just recently. So this was a good thing. And that's why Microsoft, if our listeners noted, uh, issued an out-of-cycle patch. They fixed three other things in ASP.NET as well. Uh, one actually was it was a critical security vulnerability that they, they fixed along the way. But what really motivated them to do it uh, was that they realized any IIS server could be taken down just by making some some tricky queries,
0: wow, really, really interesting. Wow. Yeah, very interesting.
1: Um, be- now, this is with the, this one is obscure, but I know that the VLC video player, which is one I often use, the Video Land player, is extremely popular. So I wanted to make note that a vulnerability yeah. oh, has yeah. been found. We all
0: use that. We recommend it heavily. Yeah.
1: Yes. Um, a, a vulnerability was found in an obscure file format. It's actually the TiVo file parser uh, has a vulnerability such that if if you were to open a .ty file, uh, that's the file format that TiVo's use the 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 ty file demultiplexer plugin which is libty underscore plugin star, there's a, vul- a known vulnerability in that that allows a remote code execution. So what would happen is somebody would send you email that contained a, a small file, a ty file embedded, saying, you know, click here if you want to see a funny movie or something, or you'd go to a website, that would, in one way or the other, induce your system to play that. So you'd have to have VLC installed. Versions 0.9.0 through 1.1.12 are vulnerable. So only the latest 1.1.13 fixes this problem. So I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. I, in looking at the VLC site, it didn't look to me like this 1.1.13 1.1.13 1. was available yet. So, what you can do, and in fact, if I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know who, who, how, how many people are watching their TiVo files in the raw like this using VideoLAN, but you can simply delete the libty_plugin.star files from your VideoLAN. Plugins directory, and then you're safe too. So if you're not using these uh, .ty files, I would just say get rid of the libty. Well, and what do you use them for again? What is the? It it actually is only for playing TiVo files. Oh, okay. Delete. Of course, everybody. Yeah, exactly. Delete it. Every, everybody gets it as part of the package, so right. that if you happen to run across a TiVo file, and the problem is, it will try. If you know, if if you if someone sends you email with a .ty file in it, and you're a VLC user, they could take over your computer remotely. So, that's just thought good. that was worth telling our listeners about. Yes, I agree. We all use it. it. Yeah, yeah, I do. Easy. I've got it on all my machines. It's a great player. So, in privacy news, uh, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld. The constitutionality of 2008's FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which had come under fire. Um, what happened was, and we've talked about this in the past when this was, was just new and happening, um, there were 33 different lawsuits which users of telecommunications companies – including, for example, um, uh, AT&T, Sprint, Nextel, Verizon, Bell South, and so forth. When it became known that the NSA was asking those companies to surveil U.S. citizens, a bunch of lawsuits were filed against those telecommunications providers saying we're not happy that you're surveilling us so we don't think that's right and what what just <laughs> happened after you know many years is that the um they up the the um you know it percolated up through the legal system a lower court said yes in fact uh this is constitutional so these 33 suits should be uh, dropped and this, all the you know, and so that that decision was appealed to the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court, that ended up upheld upholding that lower court ruling. So um, the EFF of our friends the at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, are both unhappy that uh, the lower court ruling was upheld. Um, a judge, Judge Market McKeon, who was... Um, on the Circuit Court of Appeals, said that electronic intelligence gathering depends in great part on cooperation from private companies and that if litigation were allowed to proceed against persons allegedly assisting in such activities, the private sector might be unwilling to cooperate with lawful government requests in the future. So... I would say she was right about that.
0: Yeah.
1: We, you know, we kind I, of were hoping that would be the case. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, it uh, looks like that the, the the FISA has been ruled constitutional.
0: Um, and course, so those suits drop. The, and we, uh, President Obama, signed into law the uh, National Defense Act just uh, this past week, which uh, allows, uh, allows them to yeah. um, hold retain. without – uh, yep. indefinitely without warrant. It actually overturns habeas corpus, but I guess that's not in the Constitution. Um, <sighs> it's yeah. a little scary. Uh, we live in a Knock. we're starting to live in a police state. I hate to say it.
1: <sighs> so, over the week between Christmas and New Year's, records were broken. Leo, yes, not, not old-fashioned vinyl <laughs> records. Oh, no, that's about time. Oh, maybe those. <laughs> 20 million oh, Apple that. or Android phones were activated and here's the big number that caught my attention 1.2 billion apps were downloaded in one week. 1 week.
0: It's the first one billion app to week. Food. But you think if that makes sense cuz all a lot those 20 million people had new phones and <laughs> they need to put apps on. Yeah, they got to fill them up with you stuff. to load the apps on.
1: Against all of my advice? It's like, yeah. (laughs) So how many apps would that be per phone? I don't Uh,
0: even want to do the math. It's a lot. Yeah, about a a thousand. I would say that most people who have smartphones have fewer than 100 apps. We did a survey once. People like me have more than 100 apps. But 100 seems to be a cutoff point for like super geeks. Most people have. In fact, I look at most people, and they have a half dozen or a dozen apps. They don't. They don't.
1: Well, know yeah, and thank goodness for folders, at least under iOS, because oh, yeah. wow, I mean, otherwise you're just like scrolling forever. It's like where is that
0: thing? Yeah, they really needed to do that on iOS. They yeah, sure that was did. A good thing. Yes.
1: And so, also, uh, I ran across this very funny little note um, in while I was going through the mailbag today for our for today's Q and A, and I got a kick out of it because. It reminded me of something I was sure I'd seen once before, where RPN, that is to say reverse Polish notation, was regarded as Yoda speak. <laughs> it is.
0: That's and how Yoda speaks in RPN. Exactly. <laughs>
1: and I loved, I, I saw, you know, impossible to see, the future is. Anyway. <laughs> the so verb Noel, is at the end. Exactly. Noel. In Melbourne, Australia, he wrote, and I paraphrased, paraphrased a little bit because his long his note was longer and rambling. He said, "I was so stoked to learn from you of HP's revival of their venerable HP 15C calculator, which I notified people of. It again. I don't remember if that was with you or with
0: Tom Leo, but uh, no, it was eight, with Tom. It, I didn't know that. That's fantastic.
1: It really is. That is a." I still have a bunch of 11 Cs. Now I have a couple 15 Cs that are brand new as a consequence of learning of this. Anyway, he uh, continuing, uh, Noel said, Calculators should be landscape, not portrait. And, of course, <laughs> RPN. <laughs> but my wife is not a fan and won't touch my HP calculator at all. She calls my HP RPN calculators Yoda Saying six enter nine multiply you will.
0: Well, you know that's a good way to learn RPN because that that then then it kind of all makes sense. It's Yoda that's speak. Right. Six enter nine multiply. You you give you it will. the operands,
1: then the operator. And she wants to know what's wrong with six times nine equals that we learned in school. I can we could go on and on with what's wrong. And it's with funny that. because I put a RPN and Yoda into Google, and sure enough, I knew I'd seen the notion of RPN as Yoda somewhere before and and I got a bunch of hits on that. So oh, funny. Anyway, but thank you, Noel, for reminding me. I got a kick out of that. And speaking of getting a kick out of things, um, I got a nice note actually today or no, no, Tuesday the third, yesterday, uh, from a David Goldenberg who said, Hi Steve and friends. He said, I've been a happy owner of Spinwright." for a few years now, and it's my secret weapon in the technology trenches. I'm the family tech guy. I help out at my kids' school and have my own part-time business fixing PCs, training, and networking. Spinrite is always within reach and never lets me down. Last week, oh, you'll like this, Leo, I forgot, he he also signed off with his call letters. He said, last week, I've been preparing a laptop for a presentation for my ARES amateur radio group. I volunteered to get a new program, N-B-E-M-S, which is the narrow-band emergency messaging software running that sends text messages and email-type communications over the radio. After several days, I had everything working great and spent hours getting screenshots for the PowerPoint I was to prepare. One morning, I went to start up the laptop. As I was getting together with another ham to go over what I had and to get his machine working, I started up my laptop and got the dreaded B.S.O.D., of course, the blue screen of death, and an unmountable boot volume error. I did not break a sweat or even worry, as I knew from experience that Spinrite would save the day. And needless to say, two hours later, the drive was scanned, several sectors were repaired, and the laptop booted and everything I needed was ready to go. You're great, and so is Spinrite. Thanks, David Goldenberg,
0: KJ6MCQ. KJ6MCQ, nice call sign. Not W6TWT, but nice call sign. (laughs) that's quite. (laughs) Hey, we're going to take a break. We have questions for you uh, from your uh, devoted listeners who, of course, as always, come up with lots of stuff. A do- Comments. And yeah. Yeah. a dozen questions coming in a moment. But first, I would like to mention backing everything up. This could be your New Year's resolution to make a backup. Let me get the right logo. There it is. Um, <laughs> because uh, you know, frankly, hard drives die, as we all know. Steve's made his living on dying hard drives. Yep. You, you can't always count on uh, you know spin right to save the day. Hey, if they're not spinning, then I can't help you. <laughs> that's a good point, too. you got to back up the solid state drives, and Spinrite can't save those. So that's why I recommend uh, automatic backup, very important, so you don't have to think of that, and off-site backup, so if the worst happens, your backups, which, you know, if they're sitting next to the computer and there's a fire, you lose everything. And for these most important things, the financial records, the emails, the pictures of your baby being born or your wedding, the, the stuff that you really don't want to lose, spin. Uh, Carbonite is just a wonderful solution. It's automatic off-site backup. And if it's just your internal drive, everything on that, less than 5 bucks a month. $59 a year It's a good deal. They also now, because people said, well, what about my external drives? I want to back those up too. They have accounts for that. They have accounts for multiple computers as well. If you visit Carbonite.com, you'll see all those accounts. And you can use any one of them free for two weeks. You don't need a credit card. Just the offer code security now. And then if you decide after two, I always encourage you to do these free trials. That's why they do them. Make sure it's right for you. But after the free trial, if you decide you want to buy, you'll get 14 months for the price of 12. So two extra months when you use the offer code security now. So do the free trial. And then when you sign up, use that offer code again and you'll get 14 months for the price of 12. It's really fast, effective. They support um, encryption you hold the keys so it's safe easy to restore it's also cloud storage you can access your carbonite account and all the data in it anywhere so if you use something like dropbox or skydrive this is this is unlimited backup that's accessible to you from your smartphone your tablet any computer anywhere you just log on to your carbonite account and there it is carbonite c a r b o n i t e .com use the offer code security now for that free trial and 2 months free Uh, Are you ready, Steve? I've got questions. You betcha. Lots of them. Starting with Dean Severson in Clearwater, Minneapolis. He's wondering if there's a quick read about SOPA for non-techies. We talked a lot about the uh, Stop Online Piracy Act. He says, SOPA, M-P-A-A-R-I-A-A, is a geek around the Christmas table. I get the same questions as other geeks. Lots of the answers, which should be straightforward tech answers, Really revolve around the battle with lobbyists. I tried explaining all this SOPA stuff to my friends and family. I get lots of blank stares. What is he ranting about this time? Uh, Is there a quick read link you could send us to to help the layperson understand what we're getting at when we try to explain these totally inexplicable issues? Thanks. Listeners, since episode one. Yeah,
1: I, you know, in general, I don't know of anything, but for SOPA, um, there is a a bunch of good stuff at the EFF not surprisingly you know they're on top of these sorts of censorship and privacy concerns and so forth um, and when i saw dean's question i just i went www.eff.org and their search system allows you over on the left hand side to specify categories and so i just chose the blog that they have and searched for the acronym sopa within their blog and it immediately found some very nice and written i i i i guess i wouldn't say to dean that this is maybe for his family and friends but it's definitely for him that would give him a a sort of a a, a nice looking um uh sense for um uh a way to describe these issues, so so certainly the EFF is where I would go for for things like SOPA, that are you know lobby based and and privacy and and uh, oh yeah they're the greatest uh, yeah. and censorship concerns.
0: There is a website dedicated specifically to SOPA and PIPA, the two bills that are in front of Congress uh-huh. right now. It's AmericanCensorship.org. AmericanCensorship.org, and they do have an infographic on this site that's very easy to understand and videos you can embed that you can show people or send people. Um, There's a uh, really simple video that you can email or download. Uh, There's a very nice uh, infographic that talks about... uh, the number of people who participated in American Censorship Day, 6,000 people signed up, a million emails to Congress. You know, we, we kind of won that battle. I think a lot of the people who supported SOPA, including GoDaddy and others, realized this was, this was something that uh, the Internet did not want. But the battle is far from over. They will be back again and again and again uh, I to did try to break s- the Internet because the Internet fundamentally to the Motion Picture Association and the recording industry – is uh, a threat. They see the internet and computers as piracy yep. uh, tools, not as anything else. And they're you know, in order to preserve their business model, they want to b- literally break the internet because it's you know they see it as dangerous. And we don't want them to break the internet. We want them to change their business model to suit modern times. We can't go back to the 1950s. Sorry. <laughs> Somewhere just this
1: morning, I I forgot to follow up on it because I was curious, but I saw a blurb that said that Hollywood itself is now putting together or has put together a petition or some effort of some sort to tell the the MPAA to lay off. Right. So well, yeah, not, Hollywood-
0: none, of this, none of this is monolithic. I mean, there are lots of young people in the, the record industry, in the movie industry, in the television industry, who understand that, you know... It's not really them. It's the people who have the existing business model that don't want to change it. Yeah. Uh, that are that are doing this, and unfortunately, the members of Congress don't understand uh, technology, and so they don't they don't know what's being asked of them, and what the cost of it would be, et cetera, et cetera. Fortunately, uh, I, th- I, you know, th- I think that we kind of did scare them a little bit about this, and uh, and they're starting to think a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but we got to keep on. We can't, you know, th- th- the problem is that these guys will not give up until they win or they're defeated entirely. And, uh, and I don't know how we defeat them entirely. They give, we have the best Congress money can buy. <laughs> well, unfortunately, when, when
1: Chris Dodd went over there, I'm thinking, oh, no, yeah. you know, because he's well connected. And, of course, you know, going to be a big lobbyist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Watch the video, uh, at, uh, AmericanCensorship.org. It's a very good uh, a place to uh, to uh, cool. learn about this and share with your friends. Question number uh, two. I'm glad you brought that up, though, because it's not over. It's far from it. We've got a long way to go. Uh, Mark Sikowsky suggests that you stand on your head. What? What? Well, you wrote that. Steve, longtime listener <laughs> listener, your Security Now podcast a few weeks ago, you mentioned you returned your Kindle fires in part because the on-off button got in the way and you'd actually like to turn it off while holding it. It's right at the bottom there. And if you hold it, I don't hold it that way. I hold it on the edges. But it's true. It's too easy to switch. I agree. I was having the same difficulty until I found a solution. I just turned the Kindle around because the oh. Kindle rotates and the on-off button then is at the top. No. No. <laughs> i didn't think of that no more accidentally turning the screen off the only problem i've seen is that the opening screen and the shutdown screen messages are upside down but i could live with that i'm not uh, having any of the problems you mentioned and you may want to take a look another look at the kindle fire i don't know if that's a solution thanks to you and leo for all the great podcasts sincerely mark i i think that's probably that's the you're holding it wrong answer right well okay so a couple things uh
1: yes of course He's right. You, you, could uh, do you know that. the Kindle screen rotates easily. It also occurred to me since then that if you if you had any sort of a case around it, and I would imagine everyone who gets a Kindle is, I mean, it's it's fragile in the same way that you're going to put some sort of a bumper case on your smartphone. Right. I would imagine you would do that with a Kindle, and unless they exacerbate the problem by putting a big rubber bump there to sort of like make pushing the button easy that might end up recessing the button so that they just had like a a hole through the case then you'd be pushing in in order to get to it uh so that could solve the problem i did want to mention though that i've i did get another kindle oh and
0: another fire or another regular kindle
1: no a kindle fire i i got a fire because i thought well you know first of all it's so inexpensive it's hard not to have one And that I ought to have it in order to play with it and get to know it and and see what I think. And now my complaint is that the aspect ratio is wrong (laughs) for reading. Oh, that's interesting. It's it's right for widescreen movies, which is the reason it is widescreen. But I just don't like, you know, I'm like reading in a long column or in a really wide screen with very few lines. So I was like, eh, I just, I don't, I know, I think they, you know, I'm not a fan of the fire,
0: but I do have one. I just bought and another I, uh, of the $79 Kindles. To me, these are the, this is the Kindle uh, and I got a case with a yes. light in it and it's not for me, it's for my wife because she lost it on the airplane following in, uh, in uh, my footsteps. And ah. so, <laughs> but it's 79 bucks, that's not nearly as painful as it used to be. Yes. And that's just,
1: that's a cute little one. That's I think one it's I the perfect Kindle. I stick it in my pocket when I'm going to go somewhere where I don't want to be lugging something around. And what's really neat, too, is you probably notice this, Leo. On the back are two little silver contacts, which is the way the battery or the illuminated case gets powered by the Kindle. So the, the, at least the, the, the case that, um, that I've seen doesn't use its own battery it borrows the kindle's battery which is you know very elegant cuz that means you're, you're you only have one thing to charge
0: also absolutely yeah uh, okay let's give it a i've lost my browser there it is <laughs> joshua gardner in san antonio texas says firefox's memory usage has been fixed in version one Uh, Quick note, I switched to Chrome for a bit because I could not handle Firefox's memory management leakage, which we've talked about several times before on the show. He says, 2.8 gigs of RAM usage with 30 tabs open. My poor laptop only has 4 gigs of RAM, so Firefox would constantly cause the hard drive to be running because it would have to swap things back and forth. However, I couldn't handle not having tree-style tabs, which you've recommended, uh, the side tabs. So I returned to Firefox, because it's, it's an extension for Firefox. Over the last week, I've had Firefox open probably 10 days it's been open, with about 30 tabs open all this time. And my current RAM usage is 200 megabytes in the most recent version, 9.01. If you have a spare machine sitting around, you might want to run the current version with a few tabs open for a night or two, see if you get better results. I know you aren't a latest version kind of guy, neither am I in some cases. But in this case, I think the benefit is there. Speaking of which... What is with this new trend to get rid of the menu bar and software? You know, that mm-hmm. file, edit, view, tools, et cetera. I first saw it in MS Office. Yeah, they're using that ribbon thing now. That's their thing. Uh, and uh, I'm seeing it in browsers. Uh, now, yeah, they were talking about putting ribbons on uh, Firefox. I don't know. Did they? And now a few other utilities I've seen have been updating uh, in this direction. For the record, I don't like it. Thanks for the show and all you do. Josh in San Antonio, Texas. Okay, so... A couple things to note here. First of all, the phrase,
1: my poor laptop only has four gigabytes of RAM. Okay, what is wrong with that picture? Four gigabytes. I know, it's a ton. Oh, Leo. Should be enough I mean, to I'm, last I, 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 forever. I, I mean, mine do too, Josh. I'm not, I'm not poking fun at you. I'm just saying <laughs> our world has exploded. Yeah, It's just, I mean, four... <laughs> four billion billion four billion bytes yeah, of ram yeah. oh my goodness yeah. it's it's wrong it's 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 very wrong, so I also want to note he mentioned version nine point o one I want to make sure people knew that nine was quickly- re- replaced after its first day on the planet um but I noted something else just today, and that is. Mozilla is having problems, speaking of not having enough RAM, Mozilla is having problems because they are no longer able to build Firefox. What? Um, They are having to back out of features because it will no longer build. Uh, They ran across a problem building in Windows, (laughs) and so they added the slash 3GB switch,
0: which... which (laughs) Reduces the. It used to be that Windows. You're saying the memory footprint is so huge in Firefox that there's not enough memory on modern machines to compile it. Compile it. Well, I think they need to rewrite the thing. If that's that's ridiculous, I can't even imagine. I know. If you can compile Windows, why can't you compile Firefox? Okay. So back when
1: Microsoft was architecting Windows. And remember that Bill Gates famously said yeah, no that they had 10 times more memory than the Apple II. Right. The Apple II had, could go to 64K, and so they were going to go to 640K. Well, then they realized, okay, that's not such a good idea. We need more than that. So they went to a 32-bit platform. So they said, okay, 32 bits, come on. That's 4 billion bytes. We're never going to need anything close to that so they arbitrarily divided the memory in half because why not neither half would ever get near full so two gigs for the os two gigs for the applications all the applications because again applications how big could they be (laughs) so so at some point mozilla hit their head on the two gig size And so they added what's called the slash 3GB switch, which is something you can add to the boot any file in Windows that moves that 2-gig fence that divides the OS and the applications from the 2-gig point up to 3 gigs. So the OS is squeezed down to 1, and that gives applications 3 gigs of space. Well... That's been hit now, too. So I was reading some of the developer blog comments in the forum, apologizing for a couple people who were not on the email routing list because their code had been removed and they weren't notified (laughs) because Firefox can no longer be compiled. Wow. So, yes, Leo, it is a a trap. stunning it is just a travesty it's just like well, okay guys come on this is just getting too big and as you said it's you know it needs to be started over or i, I don't mean I, what they're going to end up having to do apparently is and this is a big problem for them they're going to have to switch to 64 bit os builds to build the 32 bit version um, and that's going to be, you know, that, I mean, they're just, that's going to take them a while to, to do, but it just means we're talking about bloat with no end. So Josh, thank you for telling me that nine seems to have solved this problem. I'm still happily on 3.6 right now. And at the rate that those guys are, are going with Firefox, I mean, we do know that they're projected to have 12 ready at the end of April. Maybe this is going to throw a little kink in their calendar since they can't
0: compile it any longer. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be more to this story. I, I, that's bizarre. <laughs> Question four Jerry wonders what Steve uses and recommends a hard drive that spins or a solid state drive. After experiencing a hard drive failure many years ago, I purchased Spin right now, use it on a regular basis. I've never experienced a hard drive failure since. Here's my problem. I'm going to be purchasing a new computer, and I am torn on whether to get an SSD or a HDD. I want an SSD because of fast boot, fast startup of applications, silent operation, and SSDs generate less heat than HDDs. The two weaknesses of SDDs that gave me major pause are no spin write support and various issues concerning the successful implementation of full-disk encryption. I'd add a third, which is price, of course, price per capacity. Uh, so, Steve, what kind of disk are you purchasing for your new computers nowadays? And what are your comments, insights, recommendations on this dilemma I'm facing? Thanks.
1: I I see a lot of questions like this, which in, in the mailbag, which I sort of skip over just because I feel like, well, okay, this isn't you know the hard drive show. Um, but I thought, okay, let you know, this is one that hits home. So let's because answer this for,
0: once, and then you can refer to it yeah, from ever and
1: ever. Yeah. Um, I don't have any spinning media in any laptops. Really? And, yeah. Wow. And I've got a bunch of laptops. Um, my feeling is that's a place, just due to the delicacy of those two-and-a-half-inch small laptop-style drives, that really scares me. So that is in terms of it it just it's easy for the laptop to get bounced by mistake. You you turn it off and shut it down. You I mean, knowing what's going on in there, that this amazingly delicate little and, and ridiculously dense data stored on these little spinning platters, the heads are still flying. I like have to sort of sit there and wait until I'm sure that it's all stopped spinning and the heads have landed um and even then you really do need to be careful with laptops. All of the experiences that that the original hard drive iPod users had of their iPods dying is is similar to what happens with laptops. And with laptops being so popular, um it's just a problem. So so I do have large spinning hard drives in most of my big machines, but I, one of the first things I do is to take out the hard drive and exchange it with a solid state drive for my laptops. I like my little Mac air because it's Mm -hmm. just, you know, 64 gigs of solid state. And it just, I just, it feels right to me that this thing I don't have to worry about. And the iPad is the same for the same reason that it's just, it's solid state storage. It is just, it, that's not going to go wrong. But you're right, Leo, price is a concern. And of course, for me, where is a concern over on the SSD side? You know, we've talked about how SSDs, the current technology does get fatigued when you write to it because you're essentially you're squirting electrons through an insulator to strand them out on a little on a little piece of. Of conductive <laughs> islands and that electron tunneling squirting the electrons through you're essentially you're breaking down a an insulator, forcing it to allow a charge to pass through well, that fatigues it it actually does wear it a little bit, so I'm in the process of building up a new server for for grc it'll be it'll end up becoming. GRC.com and www.grc.com and all that. It'll be be GRC's new main server. And I've decided it's going to be SSD. But I did a couple things. I got highly over-provisioned SSDs. They have 28% over-provisioning so that the SSD has that much spare space, which is available to be swapped in as it detects problems evolving, um, and it's in a RAID 6. So not not only am I using the best, highest quality, um, and these are all, these are not MLC, by the way. These are all SLC. That's the other thing I do, and it is really expensive to go SLC, but single-level storage is much more reliable than multi-level storage. Much more expensive because... You're only able to store one bit in each cell, rather than two or three, or in some cases four bits. So it means that that the technology is less dense, thus the SSD is much more expensive. But the reason is it's it's faster and it's more reliable. And so, in addition to that, um, I'm I'm not only using SSDs that are over provisioned, but RAID six, which means that. Essentially, I have a four-drive RAID 6 array, so any two drives could fail, and the entire system still runs. How much does that whole setup cost? We're talking five (laughs) grand, easy. Yeah, that's about right, yeah. (laughs) But I won't have to worry about it. Ever. So,
0: you know, ever, yeah. Well, and I'll back you. I don't go that crazy. I'll back you, but I don't buy a computer now. Even this uh, big... um, um, iMac, this 27-inch iMac right here that I use, it has a 256-gig solid-state drive and a spinning drive for data, so it boots and runs apps off the uh, solid-state drive. All my laptops now solid-state drives. You know, I don't do full-disk encryption, uh, and I I think that that's, you know, that's a good reason maybe to be suspect of those SSDs, because as far as I know, I mean, we, we had... Alan Malvin, to, I asked Alan, and he gave me a way to do it, but, as uh, you know, really, it's not... Um, something you might want to do on an ssd i guess i gather
1: um typically laptops do support drive passwords right all the ssds support yes um, a drive password i mean most of the ssds now will will incorporate their own encryption and so if you you give the drive a password then it then it's encrypting itself on the fly so that that's going to do the job that's sufficient
0: all right yeah good Good, good. Yeah. So, I, yeah, no, so I love I, it. The speed difference is huge. It's well worth the price.
1: It is. Now, of course, the problem is no one is going to afford a
0: terabyte. No. SSD. Well, that's why I, I I compromised. And now they do make hybrid drives, which Alan, again, Alan Malvatado from PC Perspective is the SSD king, and I defer to him in every respect. He says those hybrid drives don't, they're kind of a mix, don't do as well. But I did the same thing in effect by having an SSD boot drive and a, and a data yes. drive, a terabyte data drive. Now I've got the best of both worlds. That yes. Works fine and I hope you're swapping
1: over on the hard drive, not on the SSD. Yes. Because yes. that's what you want to do too. Right. right.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's see, by the way, there's a, an interesting, uh, according to AOS 101 in our chat room, there's a, uh, a slash dot, uh, discussion, um, about the, about the fact that <laughs> Firefox are, won't compile on a 32 bit <laughs> linker anymore. Uh. uh, so actually apparently it happened last year with two gigabytes. So yep. they added a three gigabit swi- gigabyte switch to the windows build servers, and apparently, uh, it's not gonna. It's good. If you want to read more about it, the developer section of uh, of Slashdot has a has a has a very complete discussion. Uh, Incredible. And in, yeah, it's really interesting. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, moving moving along to our uh, next. Now, every time I do that, I lose the question. Here we go, Jared. Is this the guy who wants me to talk in Australian? Western Australia, uh, he wonders no, about... No, he, he's Australian, but no, I think we
1: have... He doesn't believe, want we don't,
0: we, we don't have an Australian <laughs> who wants you to use your Australian <laughs> oh, accent. Oh, good. All right, that makes sense. It's okay. not an Australian. All right, I get it now. Uh, Jared in Western Australia wonders about web browser referrer headers. Regarding the referrer header for a browser... By the way, he misspells refer, spelling it correctly with, two, with three R's. Uh, it's so funny that it's misspelled in the... In the spec. In the spec. So as a result, all the libraries, everything, have to use two R's. R-E-F-E-R-E-R. Three R's. Actually, it's four R's. They don't, double, they don't have a double R in it. Anyway, regarding the referrer header for a browser, Safari in this example, why are the headers grouped as they are? For example, uh, some websites can work just fine on the iPad 2 with its larger screen area, 1024 by 768, same as many laptops. Gmail works great with full-blown navigation. But instead, the website says, oh... You're on an iPad. I'm going to take you to the mobile domain. Based on this, it appears the referrer header is grouped so that iPhone, iPad, Mozilla are all grouped as one. My thinking is since iPhone, iPad are on the same line... See, he's misunderstood this completely. From the website's perspective, it's still a mobile browser regardless as to whether it's capable of displaying a full-blown page or not, thereby limiting user experience. While it's true, some websites do give you a link to navigate to their full website. Others don't. Is this a limitation of the referrer header somewhere in the chain? I don't mind the M. Dot sites on an iPhone as it is mobile suited, but an iPad, is there any resolution apart from using a desktop browser or hoping the web developer has linked you to their full-blown version?:
1: So as you spotted Leo, um, Jared's a little confused. Um, it's not the referrer header. it's the user agent header, right? Um, the user agent header has been around since the beginning and we've discussed it in the past because it can also be a a little bit of a privacy concern um add-on things that you put that you incorporate in your browser um like like accessory packages uh, or libraries that the browser has can all tack their own version numbers on, onto the user agent so that every query your browser makes announces that this is the user agent that is sort of the client the browser client that is that is making the query the logic the, the concept was in the beginning that if some user agents for example well like really old ones would have been text only they didn't handle graphics links so exactly links so the server could see what was asking the what was making a query and then serve different content depending upon the requirements. It used to be that the user agent would also contain and and state the resolution of the user screen. Presumably, similarly, the the server could then return content suited for the resolution. Now the reason Jared's question Caught my eye is that I too, and maybe you too, Leo, have been annoyed when, for example, using an iPad, I'm given a a much feature stripped website, which which just doesn't you know do the same thing. And in fact, um, I have two different tokens registered for PayPal. I've got my original football, and I also have um, on my. Uh, I've got the Verisign VIP on my BlackBerry, so that I'm able to use either. Well, what that means is that when I'm using PayPal and I log in, and they want my one-time password, they have they take me to a drop-down box where I choose which one. The problem is the mobile version of PayPal doesn't offer that, so I'm unable to pay with my iPad because PayPal sees that I'm using an iPad gives me their mobile version that doesn't offer me the option of specifying which one of the tokens I want to use so it's like
0: you know not But that's not you know just uh, it has nothing to do with the uh, how the browser is identifying itself the browser is identifying itself it's the website that's deciding what to do with the identification so go to the, complain to the website not to, it's not, I mean, it has nothing to do with the 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 browser's um, uh, agent string. It, the browser should always say what it is. Oh, I completely agree. It's, it's just,
1: it, it, it's an annoyance that... It's totally that annoying, the, but that's the website's yes, fault. Correct. It's stupid. Although, you, th- there have been instances where, I mean, there are add-ons, for example, that allow you... You can change the user agent, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And in, in doing that, you masquerade... Uh, what what you're using, and you you could tell the website, no, I'm not a mobile, right. I'm not a mobile platform.
0: Right, yep um, yeah, but that seems, <laughs> seems not much like not a good solution, really. The website, you send a note to Correct. the the guy who did the mobile website, and uh, I I hope we don't do that. i I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty careful uh, when we do our websites to treat the iPad as a desktop browser, but maybe not. And that would be the right thing. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, it really is. It really is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, if you go to leoville.com on an iPhone, you get the. I have a very nice uh, uh, mobile template. And the way it works, way it's a WordPress site. The way WordPress works is it looks at the user agent, says, Oh, you're yeah. on an iPhone. Good. I'm going to give you this nice mobile site. And I'm pretty sure I'll have to check it on my iPad, but I'm pretty sure it does not do that on the iPad. It's smart enough to say, Oh, no, no, no. You can see the whole thing. Yeah. Chris Ronsky in uh, Illinois, asks us about alternative PDF readers. In episode 332, you talked about alternative readers for PDF documents. I wonder if you and Leo would share your favorite choices. You first, Steve.
1: Well, now I have to defer to you, Leo, because I I purchased years ago a bunch of copies of Adobe. I'm not proud to say it, but Adobe's acrobat the full acrobat system you right. know the whole document preparation system and all that which i've been moving forward and upgrading over time so it incorporates along with it a plug for reading and so i've got literally acrobat reader as opposed to just the regular pdf reader so i haven't had to go looking for other stuff so unfortunately i'm not a good resource for this but i know that
0: you are oh well you know i in some ways i'm not because i uh, on Macs, of course you've got built-in software built-in uh and uh there are uh, third-party programs uh like one of our sponsors smile software makes pdf pen that lets you uh make them editable fill out forms and stuff like that so i have a series of tools that i use on the mac and i don't need anything from adobe and i Mm. Very careful not to download anything from Adobe on the Mac. On the Windows yes. side, I uh, I use Foxit, which I like a lot. They make a yep. distiller as well as reader. There's a free reader, but the, I paid for Foxit Phantom, which is the full thing. Uh, a lot of people like Cute PDF, um, yes, which is another really good one. There's one I I think it's free called Nitro that a lot of. So reader should be free. A viewer should be free because it's not creating PDFs. So uh, Foxit Reader is free. Actually, Chrome will read a PDF. Oh, I, I knew they were going to. Has yeah. that been now? I Did believe so. Have- yeah. Okay. So you, if you're using Chrome, you don't need anything. Um, let to see if there's any open source. I'm just going to look here and see if there's any open source for Windows. Because um, that would be nice. I bet there are. I bet there are, but I, I, I would say Foxit is my favorite, uh, yep. and I paid for the full Foxit because I think it's it's good. Although ironically, they had similar security issues uh, <laughs> to Adobe's, uh-huh. uh, yep. which they fixed. Good. But uh, good. it's good. nobody's was, immune. Yes. No software is perfect, right? Yep. PDF. Somebody uh, dark in the chat room is asking: Is it an open format? I don't think it's an open format, but I think it's specified. I think so, so they can, did
1: put it's in the public domain, it is. but I
0: think it okay. probably carries Adobe's copyright. Something like yeah, so it's a mix. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, if you don't mind using proprietary software, uh, I like Foxit a lot. Foxitsoftware.com uh and it's free. Um, so I think that's a good that's a good choice. And they don't have they don't I don't I'm pretty sure they don't have the switch that we hate so much that allows it to execute java Script and other programs (laughs) within the browser or within the reader. Pretty sure Uh. that's missing. Peter in Sydney, Australia, solves the unplug your phone once charged mystery. Oh, we were talking about this. And this actually is the one I I was referring to. So we really have covered it, but we can just read it real quick. He says uh, Nokia, Nokia started this and I think other phone companies now do it. I know my Samsung does it. The iPhone does not. Once it's charged, it says, in fact, maybe all Android phones now do this. It says it's charged unplug your charger and he points out chargers consume power even if they're not plugged to a phone and so that's why they're saying that it's to save power i don't know it's not and, it's not much but uh, but cumulatively millions of wall warts all over the country all over the world that can add up
1: and you know there are different technologies for chargers the the old school black blob actually had a transformer in it and you could put your hand on it it's and hot. it's warm yeah yeah um, a, I think that Apple's is a much newer technology switching charger. Oh, interesting. And so it may very well be that it is not drawing quiescent power uh. when
0: the device is not actually using it. Switching, though, is much more expensive to implement. And that's, of course, figures. Apple would do that. And it, and it makes them so tiny and cute and right. white. And everything, right. yeah. And white, Yeah, all switching power supplies are white. Tom Burns in Chicago comments about password haystacks and password honeypots. He says, if Leo's reading this on the air, I request his Australian accent as my favorite. Hey, Steve, perhaps this is a bit obvious, but I thought it was worth mentioning. I'm not going to read the whole thing that way. We would lose (laughs) our entire audience. First, no matter how long your password is, if it's the same across sites, then it's susceptible to password honeypots. Sites that would capture your username and password either intentionally or through being compromised and attempt to reuse the password and ID elsewhere. So let's say you sign up for Twaller.com, thinking it's Twitter or something, and you give it a a login and a password, unique, but except that you use the same password everywhere. Then they would know and try your password elsewhere. Second, and perhaps this is a bit far-fetched for the moment, any site that can capture your password and initiate a robo-login attempt with the same credentials across all of the common banking sites, can be trained to look for low-entropy passwords and flag the padding for human investigation. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. If your technique of password padding became commonplace, this would be the next logical place for hackers to go. I don't think so, because there's so much low-hanging fruit, they're not going to do any extra work. Yeah, exactly. Your listeners may want to either not use padding, or for less than completely trusted sites, or have different types of padding for different types of sites. Tom Burns in Chicago.
1: So this notion of a password honeypot was interesting because I, I took it to mean something—a variation on things we'd seen before. Um, remember, once upon a time, there were sites that offered you to sign up to, for contests and. For example, we know... Punch the monkey and all that stuff, yeah. And they would, yes, and they wanted your email address. And they, I mean, you ended up getting spam as a consequence of that. So they they were harvesting email addresses and telling you that, oh, you know, sign up for this and then, you know, we're entering you in a drawing and there's a chance, I mean, we're talking old school. This is a long time ago, but a lot of people were doing that. And so you could certainly imagine a site which wants you to create accounts, cre- ha- asks you to create an account where you identify yourself with your email address and a password. They're not saying use the same. They're not explicitly saying use the same password you use everywhere. But they're assuming that people are going to if they're not very security conscious. And then um, and then they go and try to log on with the same credentials in lots of other common websites. And if someone is using the same email address and password, that's going to succeed. So it certainly is possible for a malicious password honeypot site to be created. And I want to take this opportunity. One of the reasons I, I saw this question is just to remind people that, you know, I've with things like password haystacks and and um, the, uh, the one-time passwords and off-the-grid and all these things that I've done, those are those have been sort of research and experimental things. I'm using LastPass. I'm completely happy with LastPass. Yes. So, and, it, and you're generating a fresh password each time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've got something. I mean, I, I, I'm now dependent upon LastPass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, every so often I'll get worried about the fact that I don't know what any of my passwords are anymore. Right. Me too. So I'll make I'll make a backup copy of my, of that, of the LastPass vault, you know, offline so that I have it all. And, you know, sometimes something, uh, if I don't have it, it's like, oh, shoot. And I have to go, you know, <laughs> manually open right. up my LastPass last vault. Pass. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is, but the good news is it's it saves us from these kinds of vulnerabilities. Right. So just want to make sure people know that I'm, you know, I'm still LastPass.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, and then I also use, you know, the, the key is don't use the same password all the time. And I right. use, um, I use a variety of ways to generate passwords for sites. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. Steve in Piscataway, New Jersey, suggests that the router reboot problem, it's not so bad. Uh, regarding the router rebooting, which allows direct PC connection to the Internet... This, I mustn't have been here when you described right. this. Isn't it true that a PC that has already booted has a locally assigned IP address, you know, like a 192.1 dot? If so, doesn't that mean that it is not routable from the internet? Therefore, there's no exposure unless the PC happens to be rebooting at the same time the router is in switch mode. You're going to have to explain to me.
1: Yes, yeah, interesting, Leo. It was it was something that came up, uh, I think, when you were in yeah. Paris. Must have been. and And that is... It was revealed that some of the fancier routers that are doing a lot of things are, as we know, typically a Linux OS. But that the other layers of technology like the NAT and the, the stateful packet inspection firewall and so forth are additional services that do not start up immediately. And we have – we heard and have – it has been verified that some of these routers are simple bridges between the internet and your internal network until they get fully booted, which means your your home network is exposed to the internet with no protection while the router is rebooting. Isn't that interesting? Hmm.
0: And so, it is the case. It is the case.
1: Hmm. Yes. So w- what Steve has said is like, wait a minute, um, the machines on your home network would be private IPs, one nine two one six eight what what. you know. Um, so even if the router was rebooting, your machines would still have a private IP so they wouldn't be able to get on the internet. What the... What we realized a couple of weeks ago was that if you if your PC was asking for a DHCP renewal, if you are renewing your DHCP lease while the router was rebooting, you would actually it would pass right through the router and you would get a DHCP IP from your ISP that is a public IP rather than a private IP because your router was just bridging the internet traffic through. So so Steve's right that that your machines on the private LAN would have private IPs, but the but the important thing is that their stack, their TCP IP stack would still be exposed directly. So it's not that they wouldn't be able to get on the internet which they wouldn't, because they'd have a private IP, 192.168. whatever, but that incoming traffic would be passing directly through the router and hitting their machine. So the good news is, and we, t- we did talk about this at the time, most PCs have software firewalls now that are running, that are protecting them themselves, but on the other hand, we are depending upon our routers often for security. And so it is the case that the router is not providing us that unsolicited incoming packet dropping and security during this interval until it finishes booting. So I would contend there there is still some window of vulnerability, which is uh, just to sort of keep aware of.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh Anthony in Oregon wonders what to do when updates fail. (laughs) Hi, Steve. I'm sure you know some of Microsoft's updates fail. For instance, the latest one, KB2618444, the cumulative security update for IE9. Even the support form hasn't been much help. I do not use IE. But I want to keep it up to date, of course. Will my system not having this update adversely affect my security, even though I don't use Internet Explorer at all? And if so, how can the updates that fail even after multiple tries be uh, downloaded? I don't remember this subject specifically coming up on the Security Now podcast. No, but it comes up all the time on the Tech Guy. Yeah. If you think it's relevant, maybe you could address it briefly. I've been listening to Security Now for years and enjoy it very much. Keep up the good work. And, Leo, I don't know if you've got any magic solution. Oh, I do. But yeah, it comes up a lot. <laughs> yeah. What do you tell people? Well, there's two things. Well, I'll answer both questions. Uh, uh, first of all... Uh, Updates, you know, think about it. If you're doing an update in place of an operating system, it's like changing the tablecloth, you know, by whipping it out and putting a new one in there. It's not always going to work. In fact, it's amazing it works as well as it does. uh,
1: That was going to be my first comment
0: was, (laughs) I'm not surprised when it fails. I'm surprised when it doesn't. (laughs) I mean, you're really, you're you're modifying a system. uh, You're building a plane while it's in flight. You're changing the engine. So um, to to add yet another metaphor. Um, so when they failed, uh, what happens often is, and this is actually the more serious issue. Uh, if an update has failed, uh, you will not then go on to do other updates and you will not be able to add future updates until that one update gets done. It's blocking. So Microsoft has a very long tech note. I'll see if I can find it again. We put it in our show notes all the time at the tech guy show explaining the 38 different things you can try if you've got wow. a failed update including clearing the registry. Mostly it's clearing a registry setting, um, undoing it, and so forth. Now, if you have an update that you really want, you don't have to use automatic update, in-place update. Uh, You can change Windows Update. If you go into Windows Update uh, and go into the settings on the left there, you can uh, do it, you know, because think about this. Administrators at a business with hundreds of PCs, they don't want to go to each PC one by one and do an auto update. They download the file once and then apply it. Over the network, or they go from machine to machine. So Windows Update does allow you; you can actually go to the updates and download individual update files all by themselves. Uh, this is a this is what I do, for instance, for system packs because they're so big. You know, I just want to put you know the seven hundred megabyte download on a on a USB key and then update and all my systems. Yeah. Yep. So uh, you can you can go into the um, settings of uh, I, I don't remember the step by step, but it should be pretty apparent. Uh, Go into the settings and go to I think it's called the catalog of updates and go to individual updates and get them. Um, If it's stalled, though, I'll tell you before the show's over. We got a couple more questions. Let's let's I'll I'll let you answer those and I will find the knowledge base article. Uh, You could also Google, you know, uh, go to Microsoft. Don't even Google it. Microsoft has a great site support.microsoft.com where you can search for. Failed update, and you'll find all the articles in there and Uh, all the different things you can do. It's but the problem is, it's not just one thing, there's a variety of different solutions depending on how it got stuck. Yeah, it happens all the time. I
1: know it's, I've got several machines which I've what I like older machines with that have just stopped being able to be updated because you know something a screw loose. <laughs> occurred and it just like says okay updates have failed and it's like okay you know and I've you know rebooted and and sometimes uh, if they come up if Microsoft comes up with a service pack that'll sort of flush everything and make it current again and, and it'll kind of come back to life and I've sort of screwed around rebooted a few times and and it's sort of like oh it's, look it fixed itself but it's I mean it is black magic yeah and they'll get stuck is, yeah, here's an
0: article those. updated on halloween 2011 appropriately revision 7.0 of this article it's uh, at the support.microsoft.com site article number 906602 906602 how to troubleshoot common windows update microsoft update and windows server update services installation issues and uh it it's really kind of a meta article that will link to a lot of other articles um, that will, you know, help you a little bit. And there's, as you could see, there's, there's, well, let's see. I don't even, I can't even count the number of related articles, uh, uh, various error, error codes and so forth. So um, there you go. Yep. Windows update stalled. Windows update failed. Windows update blocked. All of that stuff. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Most of the time you just edit the uh, registry to say, "Hey, it's, you know, start over." Or there is the reformat command. Well, it's funny because somebody in our <laughs> chat room said, "I had this happen to me and Microsoft sent me a Windows 7 DVD and said, just reinstall." <laughs> 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 That's a good solution. <laughs> Gord corrects episode 332 about the um HP calculator. He said, you said, ever since I was in high school, I spent the $400 I saved up from a summer job to buy myself the HP-41, which was the very first scientific calculator HP produced, so I have long loved these machines. He says, Steve, you know, actually, it was HP-35 was the first scientific calculator. He knows, because he still has it on his desk, along with his picket metal slide rule. Yeah! The original HP 35s were distinguished as they did not indicate the 35 on the front label. It was only after the introduction of the 45 did they have to put 35 on the old ones. I also have a 15C. I still use on a daily basis. He must be an engineer. Regards, Gore, or he's a nuclear scientist. So, so it's the yeah, 35, I, 35 is the legendary HP
1: calculator. Yep, and that was what I purchased. I, uh, yeah. they, uh, in the magazines, they had it was it was so revolutionary that they had a actual size photo of the front of it. And of course, being the hyper nerd that I was, I cut it out, mounted it on cardboard, and had it in in my pocket. Oh, goodness. I was insufferable. Um, And I remember practicing RPN on this piece of cardboard while I was saving up my money for my summer job. That is
0: the sweetest story I ever heard in my life. (laughs) He made a cardboard... Replica so he could practice. <laughs> oh, what do you four? That's very uh, cute. That's very cute. Yeah, I had you that, know, I, but you must add slide rules too. Those picket slide rules. Remember those? Yeah. Pickets I, were the aluminum, I, I, right? Bamboo, baby. Bamboo is um, the way I went. I go bamboo. Yep, but I had the I had a couple. pickets are cheaper. Yep, the bamboo was
1: self-lubricating, yes. and of course, and it wouldn't uh, expand and contract with, with
0: temperature. As the aluminum which, does, of course. Yeah. Exactly. And the aluminum, you had to use a pencil graphite to <laughs> lubricate those. You know, oh, my okay. father-in-law, Jennifer's dad was a science teacher in high school, and he has, remember they, in high school they had the giant... Slide rules so they could teach you how to use a slide rule. The to demonstration demonst- slide rule, yep, with, with, with big eye hooks so that yes. it, it would hang above the black He has one. I'm dying to get it. Oh. I would love to put it right here, hanging up right there. Wouldn't <laughs> that be, be barking, great? Or maybe just kind of lean it against the wall, sort of like <laughs> skis. Yeah, because they're like four or five feet. They're big. Yeah, yeah. I really want one of those. That's neat.
1: So yes, question. it was an HP 35. Yes. I still have it in its, in its original box and packaging. Um, it's, uh, in my, my, my memorabilia box somewhere. So, and you know, it used an LED display, the old seven say, se- or yeah, the old seven segment display. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yep. And, oh, and I did get confused because the 41, it was a, I also had an HP 41. That was the lcd calculator that had four little module slots on the back and you could plug in there was like a barcode barcode scanner and a printer and other things and uh you know the battery the batteries lasted way longer on that i think that that one used n cells as i recall and uh and that was a beautiful calculator too yeah i've always been an hp calculator person i i and you know at this point I'm not changing.
0: TI will will never get me. I'm an RPM. TI was the cheap guy. But RPM, for people who say, no, that's confusing, it just makes sense. You put the operands first, and then you put the operator. That just makes sense. And it's much easier to program. If you think about it, it's stack-based, right? You push the operand. You know, if you're doing one plus one, you push one. Then you push another one. Enter it, it. And then it's just a stack. And then you put the operation, the plus... And it consumes the top two things in the stack to make the result, which it pushes on the stack. Yep. It's 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 really, that's why they did RPM, because these were very primitive devices, and they couldn't make the programming too complicated, and that's how they did it. It's just, Yeah, I just, uh, it's perfect. Yeah. Tom Walker, Littleton, Colorado, has the bonus question of the week. Thanks for the great show and thorough prep work you put into it. Yes, Steve, does work so hard. Probably harder than any of our other hosts. You really put hours, I don't know how many hours every week, into making this show happen. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, He says, I'm curious. (laughs) Get this question. Every darn show. I I need an FAQ. Uh, What are the three boxes with flashing lights over your left shoulder? I figured, you know, once a year... For people who are watching
1: the video, <laughs> I guess year. you must you must see it in the IRC chat room. The chat though. room, They've every been...
0: single show. In fact, I think there's yeah. probably a um, FAQ somewhere, like in the wiki or something, because <laughs> oh. they put a link in. You know, they say, yes, here Go it here. is. Here's the answer.
1: Yeah. Um, So, to, Tom, those are reproductions of the classic original Digital Equipment Corporation deck, PDP eight mini computer, which I built a few years ago, and uh, from a kit which uh, was made available, and I part- I participated in the creation of the kit, and actually a number of our listeners purchased them and built them also. So uh, I have them running because that's pretty much all they're good for is flashing <laughs> is, Blinkin is lights. Blink, blinking very lights, blinking fa- lights, very fancy blinking lights. But, but you know, I grew up watching. Uh, voyage to the bottom of the sea with the sea view mm-hmm. and, the, and the computer and time tunnel and yeah, lost me space. Too. And you've got to have banks of blinking lights. That's just part of the thing you need. So I figured in my own little way, I'll, I will have some, some blinking lights going on. Aren't,
0: and you, aren't you cute?
1: Every <laughs> So often I look at them and
0: I, they warm my heart a little Aww. bit. It's like, oh, I'll remember them and you have a whole page dedicated to these on your website by the way i've got i've got a whole subsite with the code that
1: i wrote and and the creation of those and demo videos that that show how they work and what they do so
0: yeah grc.com it's yep. uh, so there's a menu item that says pdp8 check it out yep. and uh, that concludes our q and a for this week q and a 134 uh, we'll do another one in two weeks, and you can always go to GRC and ask a question. He, you know, people are saying, "Well, Steve never answers my question." How many questions oh. a week do you get? I mean, you, you know, it's it's okay. Week. Actually, I guess I deleted the file. Um, I'm actually
1: processing. I'm processing the history of submissions to Security Now because I I had the the testimonials that I had posted for SpinRight. I hadn't updated them since 06. Wow. And so people were thinking, wait a minute, nobody has given a testimonial <laughs> since 2006? <laughs> How, well, what's going on? So I thought, okay, I got I to fix that. Uh, we have had 47,000 questions submitted or sub- submissions of those 6,700 some i don't remember the exact numbers but 6700 mentioned have have the four letter word spin in them so uh and of course many of them are not testimonials some are just people saying hey buy by the way i got a copy Spin right just right, right, right. blah 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 but um so anyway yes the fact is every time i check the mailbag and i get the mail every two weeks i pull it from the server for the purpose of preparing the Q and A, and as you say, Leo, I do spend hours, but I'm—I just can't read the 300 submissions that I get. So I, I read enough to get, you know, 10 to 12 good ones. like we just had and then it's like okay you know and and i I, if i had more time i would but i just got to get other stuff done you can see i didn't even shave today because i had the iowa the iowa Iowa caucus was yesterday up all night uh,
0: watching the votes uh, (laughs) waiting to see it was close oh right now i'm just looking right now eight eight no it was a difference of eight it's down to one no i'm looking right now Maybe, the, maybe, nope. yeah. maybe wait a minute, maybe was that a... No, no, yeah, it's down to one. It's, a, it's as close to a tie as you can get. That's incredible. But it's just a caucus. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's not... No, it, just, it was just fun to watch. Yeah, it's a straw poll. It's not uh, in any yeah, way anything binding. No. But it is fascinating that it was that close. Wow. Especially since uh, Romney spent a lot of money there, and I think Rick Santorum spent like nothing yeah, although he spent a lot of time, Rick went time. all over He went to state. every county in the state of Iowa. <laughs> yeah, Google may say eight, but I'm looking at uh, it does say uh, CNN went out. See, I don't know if we're looking at a CNN might be going. You know what? They're going back through the, their coverage. That's what it is. So it was one, and now it's eight. And oh, okay, I don't know. Amazing. What's the difference? What's the statistical uh, oh. difference? out of uh what was it Almost, was it, it was like 30
1: 30 it was a little low high they both got more santorum and like Romney, 60, both got a little
0: more than 30 each yeah so it's, so that's and that's just the two of them yes wow <laughs> you need more than a slide rule to uh the slide rule would not give you enough precision to calculate that so if anybody's interested the next
1: republican debate is this coming saturday and then the one afterwards is the following Sunday on uh, NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday morning. Um, but ABC is doing a Republican debate next Saturday. And we're doing our next podcast next Monday. So uh, do that in reverse
0: be... Polish notation.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so that one's going to be on WPS, the Wi Fi Protected oh, Security Problem. Oh, good. Uh, which caused us last week to immediately advise everyone to disable it if they can. We're going to go in detail and in depth into how it works and how it's broken. So that's our topic for next week's Security Now. But we are recording, as you reminded me, Leo, and we'll remind our live listeners, uh, at 9 a.m. Pacific. Monday yep. Pacific
0: time. Yep, That's noon uh, Eastern. And it's uh, 20, no, I'm sorry, 9 plus 8 is uh, 1700 UTC if you want to watch live. But, you know, you don't have to watch live because we make audio and video versions available for a download after the fact. Steve's got 16 kilobit versions if you want the tiniest thing. Well, no, there's something even tinier. He also has uh, text transcriptions. I do. So that's the smallest version if you want to just read security now uh we have the audio and video at our site twit.tv but if you go to grc do check out Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility uh and all the free stuff steve gives you including the information about password haystacks shields up and on and on and on steve thank you so much a great pleasure always uh, next week wps And thank you for moving the
1: podcast forward before you take off to CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, where you guys will be uh, broadcasting all next week uh, for
0: uh, live, I guess, right? Yeah, well, tons all day, and, and it's part of the evening, too. Cool. Thanks, Steve. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.